As most of you know, we made a beginning in our study of Romans, the book of Romans, and I've looked over two sermons to the general, general introduction up to verse 7. We're doing that, of course, on Sunday evenings, but because of the recent celebration of the wedding of Jonathan and Emily, Pastor Fisher has taken this week off preaching due, his, due to his responsibilities there. I do invite you back this evening. We're still meeting for worship as uh, Elder Boyajian delivers uh, his exhortation to us, this congregation, so it's Uh, encourage you to come and join us uh, this evening. It's my privilege, though, this morning to return to preaching in the mornings. Uh, In Romans chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 15. But just for review, and very briefly, I want to remind you all of where we have come. Uh, The theme of this uh, book, we noted, is uh, what I term here the language of Paul in verse 1, the gospel of God. Uh, That is a possessive use of uh, the terms, and so it is God's gospel that Paul proclaims. It is not his own making or design or idea, but he is merely called as a servant of Jesus Christ and an apostle as one set apart for this gospel. And it is interesting in that verse to note how Paul describes himself in that way, a servant of Jesus Christ, that means he is one who is given the authority of Jesus Christ uh, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he is under his authority as well. He sees himself as serving Christ willingly, and that is the focus and calling of his life. He is also called to be an apostle. An apostle is one who is sent, one who is sent with authority. He is the authoritative messenger of the gospel. And he is, of course, as he says here, set apart for that gospel that relates to his calling. You remember that in Acts chapter 9, as he was called and Ananias Ananias came and told him what the Lord told him to tell Paul, that he was called for this very purpose. And so as we continue to look at these opening verses, we saw in the second week that this gospel of God is about something. And what it is about, of course, is the gospel of his son. It is the gospel of of Jesus Christ. So the gospel of God, Paul says, is about what God has already declared in the scriptures concerning his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in order that the obedience of faith might be brought about among the nations to the glory of his name. That is really a summary of those verses that remain in the first seven verses. The gospel of God is about what God has already declared In the scriptures concerning his son by way of prophecy, our Lord Jesus Christ, in order that the obedience of faith, which means faith in Christ, might be seen among the nations and all to the glory of his name. And when we studied those verses, we noted that this in the beginning is exactly almost word for word how Paul ends this letter as well. When he says these words, now to him who is able to strengthen you, to you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept hidden long ago, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith 
To the only wise God be glory forever and ever. Through Jesus Christ, amen. So when you see that the beginning of a letter and the end of the letter says almost exactly the same thing, then you know what the whole letter in between is about. And it is about the gospel of God, the gospel of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we turn to verses 8 through 15. You see this ends, most of our Bibles have a division after that. This ends the general introduction that the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans before he gets into the heart of the letter itself. And so please stand as we read these verses this morning, verses 8 through 15. This, I remind you, is the word of our God. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I, make mention, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. All flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we are so utterly dependent upon the work of your spirit now as we come to this, your word. Bless the reading of it to our hearing and growth. Bless the preaching of it to our mutual building up in Christ, we pray. And we ask it with great hope and thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In previous studies that we've done in some of the letters of the Apostle Paul, I've often asked the question, how do people view the Apostle Paul based on his writings? What is the primary thought that comes to your minds as you think of the Apostle Paul? Many have said, and I think rightly in many ways, that Paul is a theologian par excellence. There's nothing more than the book of Romans that we need to prove that very point. And that is certainly true. Uh, some say that he is best seen and known as a preacher. I'm not sure if you read First and Second Corinthians that Paul would agree with that. He didn't have a high view of his preaching, uh, much like many today uh, don't as well. But uh, he was a preacher. He clearly wants to preach the gospel, uh, but uh, he probably did not see himself that way. I believe that as you read his letters, the thing that comes forward and to the forefront most is Paul as a pastor. He is a faithful shepherd of God's people, a model for all true shepherds of Jesus Christ, a model, the best of models, apart from the Lord himself, who so faithfully cares for and tends his sheep. 
We see that in many places. I won't go through all of the examples of that, but you see his heart in so many of the letters that he writes, his desire to see them. The Romans here is but one expression of that heart, a desire to be a pastor and a shepherd of these believers in Rome. But that's really seen all throughout his letters as he begins them in a similar way. And so this morning, I want to look at that sense or that idea of Paul being a pastor from the perspective of his own words, really in verses 14 and 15. I am convinced as I look at this section that those are the most important and central words in this section. And I think it really helps us to understand the rest of it. Notice what Paul says in verses 14 and 15. I am under obligation, he says, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. And so I want to look at this passage from that vantage point. What does Paul mean when he says that he is a man under obligation? Now, the word translated obligation here, I believe, is the best understanding. It's the most helpful, at least, as to understanding what Paul is actually saying. Some versions prefer to use the term debt, which is also a fair translation of the word that is used. But uh, debt is often misleading. Uh, Debt sort of uh, implies that you owe someone something for what they did to you. And if he's in debt, in that sense, to Greeks and barbarians, the questions would follow, what in the world did they do for him that he would owe something to them? That is why obligation is a much better understanding. He has an obligation to them, but the obligation is from God and towards God that he is seeking to fulfill what God has called him to do. You remember again the words of Ananias as the Lord gave him these words to speak to Paul after his conversion on the road to Damascus. Go, he says, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What Paul senses is a burden given to him from Christ directly. And it's that obligation that Paul seeks to be faithful in fulfilling as he lives his life. It's an obligation, a burden, much like we heard in the verses read from Jeremiah 20. Jeremiah is dealing with Pasher, who has put him in stocks. Pasher is concerned about Jeremiah's message, which... Pasher says it's not true. Pasher is one of the ones who says peace, peace, where there is no peace. Jeremiah comes with the promise of God's destruction of Jerusalem. And in that struggle in those verses, you remember what Jeremiah said. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. And if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. That that sense, that burden, that obligation, if you will, I think is what Paul has in mind here when he speaks about the obligation that he has among the Greeks and barbarians. 
In his own words, in 1 Corinthians 9, a passage read earlier as well, he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching... I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the the gospel. Now the language he chooses here in Romans chapter 1, the language of a burden that he feels or an obligation that he has, both to Greeks and barbarians, is simply Paul's shorthand for the entire world. Remember at this time, Rome became the leading nation, but who was the leading nation before that? It was Greece, of course. And Greece had so permeated the culture that in Paul's day, even in Paul's day, everything was seen with respect to either being Greek or not Greek. You were either Greek or you were a barbarian, literally. And so when Paul says, I have this obligation both to Greeks And to barbarians, it's shorthand for saying to the whole world. He goes on to describe them as wise and foolish. Another common understanding in Paul's day as to the division of all of humanity. So Paul says with respect to the known world in his day that he personally, by God, has an obligation. He is under obligation to proclaim the gospel. That's why he wants to go to Rome again. Make it to Rome, you make it to the world. The gospel has been established in Rome. We don't know how. It wasn't by Paul. It wasn't by his preaching, by his visit. It was most likely from those who had been there on Pentecost, returned to Rome, and God raised up a church in Rome that had become well-known in that time throughout the world. And Paul is rejoicing in this. But he is also a man under obligation. He longs to be there with them because he knows that if he goes to Rome, ministers to Rome, has the gospel more firmly established in Rome, it will be from Rome that the gospel will go to the whole world. That's how his obligation will be satisfied. Now, if we look at Paul then, As a man under obligation, what characteristics of a man under obligation do we see in this passage? Because that's how he's writing. He's writing as a man under obligation. I'm going to propose this morning that there are four things in this passage. You can divide it differently, but in my mind, there are four things that come to the forefront of what a man under obligation looks like. The first is this, he is a man of prayer. That should not be surprising. In verses 8 through 10, he speaks of his prayer for these believers. He does so in two ways. One, with respect to the thanksgiving he offers to God. And notice the order, it's it's not a throwaway line. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. You see, Paul understands at the outset in these verses that it is through Jesus that he approaches the Father. And so as he takes on this posture of prayer, 
and especially thanksgiving, he comes through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, our advocate, our mediator. Remember, he wrote one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We're studying those verses now in 1 Timothy. That's who he comes through to the Father. He understands that that's the connection we have to the Father. It is through Jesus Christ, the Son. And so he offers, first of all, thanksgiving to God. He praises God for the work that God has done among the saints in Rome. This faith of which they have embraced by the grace of God has become known in all the world And so Paul is rejoicing and giving thanks. I believe a man under obligation, like the Apostle Paul, is one who recognizes the need to give thanks to God and to God alone for the work that he is doing. You see, Paul was always off-putting. He was never taking the attention to himself. He was always giving praise to God because this ultimately is the work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's fitting for him to begin by saying how much he thanks God for them and for the work that God has done among them. If you look at his letters, and we're not going to do that, but if you look at his letters, you you see this common theme. All of his letters have this common theme. I thank my God always for you. I thank my God always for you. He was a man given to thanksgiving in his prayers, but he was always or also given to petition and to praying specifically for them. That is also a characteristic of a man or a woman under obligation. Again, look at his letters. I think of the book of Ephesians. There are two prayers when I visit people for the first time in their homes. I will often read from one of those two prayers because it's such a a clear expression of Paul's desire for those believers, that they might grow up into the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the eyes of their understanding being opened, to be reminded how the depth and length and height of God's love is for them. It's so important for us to know what we pray for one another. And here Paul tells them that he's giving thanks to the Lord for them, and he's praying for them, and he assures them and he uses this, this language of, of taking an oath in verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Always in my prayers. It's not hyperbole. I believe if you were to follow the Apostle Paul around, you would see him often in prayer, morning, afternoon, evening, night, through the night. He depended upon the mediation of Jesus Christ, but he interceded faithfully because a man under obligation to the Lord who has called him is a man who is consistent in his prayers for the saints. And that's the picture of the Apostle Paul It highlights, doesn't it, his utter dependence upon the Lord. He was not one to strike out in his own strength. He wasn't one to sort of do the work God gave him to do by his own power. You see it so clearly in his letters, how he was brought to the end of himself. He even says that in 2 Corinthians, so that the power of God might be made manifest in me. So, 
A man under obligation is first and foremost a man of prayer. Secondly, in verses 11 and 12, he is also a man of blessing. Now, what do I mean by that? It's a helpful way for me to think about it, but let me tell you what I mean. It is what he says, that he desires to be to them a blessing. For I long to see you, verse 11, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He wants to be used of God. He understands his calling. He understands the obligation. But he understands the practical need of the church in Rome to be blessed, to be strengthened through his apostolic ministry. Now, there's a lot of debate as to what Paul means that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Some argue it's just a general sense of the preaching of the gospel and God's blessing upon that for the people. But I tend to agree with those who believe that what the Apostle Paul is really saying here, as an apostle and possessing those unique, extraordinary, and only for a time spiritual gifts that were evident in the early church for the affirmation of the word that they preached, that that's what he wanted to do. You see, everywhere Paul went as an apostle, as he preached, those, that preaching was often accompanied by signs and wonders. Those were not magic shows for a side sort of tent. They were there as the signs and wonders Jesus did to confirm the word of God. And Paul desired, with respect to the saints in Rome, to the church in Rome, that they would as well, him having never been there, no apostle having been to Rome, that they would have experienced that blessing, the blessing of having the spiritual gifts unique to the apostles, attending the preaching of the word so that their faith might be strengthened. I think that's what Paul means here, to strengthen them. He wants to build them up. I think he sees, for the lack of apostles being in Rome, that they were very vulnerable It doesn't mean that God in the preaching of the word alone isn't powerful to change people's hearts. It does mean, especially in this period of time, that God often accompanied the preaching of the word with those miraculous signs and wonders and gifts before everything gave way to the ordinary means of grace in the preaching of the word and the sacraments. This was a unique time. And Paul, I believe, is actually saying here, I long to express, to be used of God, to confirm your faith through the miraculous signs and wonders that God is doing all over the earth. Everywhere Paul went, it was accompanied by these signs and wonders. And I think that's important for us to see. That was his longing. He wanted to be a blessing to them. But don't miss what he says as well in verse 12. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul wasn't going to show off. He wasn't going just simply to do these special miraculous gifts to affirm the word of God in their hearts. He wanted as well to be mutually encouraged. Uh, This picture is a beautiful picture of life within the church. The way believers uh, walk together, live together, in this life that we call church, 
the way we participate in things like Fellowship 3, for instance, not simply so that we can enjoy each other's homes and the temporal blessings of this life, but so that we as believers can be built up and encouraged by each other's faith. There's nothing like the body of Christ in their fellowship together in the Holy Spirit. That koinonia, that fellowship that unites us at the level of our hearts, our souls, because of what God has done for us in Christ. And brothers and sisters, when we have opportunity to share what God has done in our lives through the trials and tribulations of life, the joys and the sorrows, the times of suffering, the times of great blessing, haven't you walked away from those times saying, isn't God good? Isn't his grace amazing that he would sustain my brother and my sister through such a time as this? Those times are invaluable in the life of any church. That's why as a church we've always emphasized, not just Fellowship 3, but in our fellowship dinners, uh, our times just informally together. I mean, when we work for cleaning up the church property, there are times of great fellowship that we can have when we enjoy one another, when we share what God is doing in our lives. That's what Paul wants to do because a man under obligation is a man who desires to be a blessing and to receive a blessing from others in Christ. Thirdly, he is also a man in verse 13, what I'm referring to, a man under providence. A man under providence. You know what providence is, is one of the two ways where the decrees of God are worked out, both in creation, the works of creation, and the works of providence. What is the work of providence? His governing, his directing all things, everything in life for our good and for his glory. Paul understands that. Even in his calling as a man set apart as an apostle unto the gospel of God, he understands he's under God's providence. And so as he looks at his life in verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be unaware. I really do want to come to you. I want to visit with you. And I've tried often. But he says, thus far, I have been prevented in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, we don't have an accurate picture in the book of Acts as to when these things happened, when Paul or what Paul is clearly referring to. You, you remember the time where Paul has the vision of the man in Macedonia, right? His heart was burdened in the night. He saw this man saying, come over here, Paul. Well, that was so that the gospel would go to Macedonia, to Philippi and beyond. And, and so that was clearly a, a, a leaning of God to the gospel to go westward, heading towards Rome, if you will. But it was not to Rome. That may be what Paul has in mind, these providential dreams and visions that he received as the Lord was directing his life. But listen, a man or a woman under obligation recognizes that God is sovereign and that he rules, that he leads. He would eventually come to Rome, we know. He would come in chains. He would come eventually, even after that, to die in chains again to Rome. The point here is that his desire was clear. It was firm. He assures them that he really did want to visit them. But he was teaching them and himself recognizing that he is under the providence of God. And that all that he does is directed by him alone. 
And then finally, we see really what is the heart of all of this in verses 14 and 15, a man eager to fulfill his calling. Obviously, a man under obligation who has a sense of that calling is one equally who has a desire to fulfill it. And you see that in Paul's language, don't you? He says, I'm under obligation to all kinds of people in the whole world, he says. The whole known world at that time. I am eager, he says. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. How many cities had he been to prior to this? We don't know exactly. We don't know how many cities he preached the gospel. But he longed to do what he had been doing for years in Rome. He longed to fulfill his calling in Rome again because he knew that when he reached Rome, he would have the opportunity under the providence of God to reach the world. Rome was the place where all the world came and from which they went into all the world. And so if many would come and receive the gospel in Rome through the work of the Apostle Paul and what God was already doing by his spirit, then the gospel would be, and in fact had been, taken into all the world. We're the recipients of that as we sit here in 2023 because of Paul's desire to be faithful as a man under obligation to fulfill his calling. I believe if you take these four points and you match them, to what Paul says in all of his letters, you will see these things consistently expressed. To the Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians, to the churches in Thessalonica, as well to the pastors he mentored and cared for, whose lives he shaped and who became such men themselves, men under obligation, men like Timothy and Titus. You see it in his more personal letter as he writes with great emotion and love for Philemon and the church there that met in his house. His love for Onesimus, the runaway slave, whom he desired not only to be reconciled to Philemon, but to stay with Paul as Paul himself at that time was in chains in Rome, that he would be a blessing to him and that Paul might be a blessing to this new believer, Onesimus, and even to the churches in Corinth, so troubled as they were with so many problems, you see the heart of a man who was under obligation. He was under obligation because he was a man who not only heard the gospel, preached the gospel, but was changed by the gospel as well. He experienced in his own life the grace of God in the gospel of his son, And the whole course of his life was changed. He went from a man who desired to kill every follower of Jesus Christ for the honor of the God he thought he was serving. When Jesus arrested him on that road, blinded him, and then removed the scales from his eyes so that he could finally see. And at that moment, he became a man under obligation a man of prayer, a man of blessing, a man under providence, and a man eager to fulfill his calling wherever God would lead him, from the slums of the cities to which he traveled and visited, to the great heights of the philosophers at Mars Hill in Athens, whomever he met, he was this man under obligation. 
He says to the Corinthians in chapter 5 of his second letter, the love of Christ compels, constrains me all the way. Like Jeremiah, he had no choice. It would burn like a fire in his belly. He had something to give. He had knowledge of the truth. He had come to experience the grace of God in Christ, and he had to give it to others. The same thing is true for you and I this morning. The same thing is true. If you have come to know the truth of the gospel as it has been revealed in Jesus Christ, if you've come to experience the grace that is found in Christ alone, you are a man or a woman or a young person under obligation. You've been given a calling. Now, you're not an apostle, neither am I. None of us are the Apostle Paul. None of us are like him in that unique sense. But all of us are like him if we have come to know his grace. Now listen, if you haven't this morning come to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel of God's Son, then you need to hear that gospel. You need to believe and come to submit yourself to him who is your Lord. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uses a wonderful illustration in his commentary, an excellent work just reprinted, when he says there's an illustration of a man on his deathbed awakened in his conscience as he faces death and an unknown eternity. He remembers in God's providence you and he calls for you. Do you go to him, Jones, Lloyd-Jones says, And simply tell him that you wish he had lived a good and moral life like you had done. And then all would have been fine. No, you would never speak such words to someone facing death. You would give him what you have received. You would give him what you have come to know in Jesus Christ. You would give him the gospel because you are under obligation to do so. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3 When he says regarding suffering for righteousness sake, he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We do all of this. All of it, because we are men and women and young people under obligation. That's the view, I think, of the Apostle Paul in these verses. That's the man who writes this letter. Now that we've come to the end of the introduction of the letter to the Romans, I trust you can see again more clearly the man again behind the letter. What motivated him, what compelled him throughout his entire life following his conversion on the road to Damascus. First and foremost, as we have seen, he was a man who was captivated completely by the gospel that he was called to preach. He believed it by the grace of God and was changed by it before he ever went to preach it. He spoke out what he knew personally, and that must be true of all of us as well. How can we ever, ever hope to effectively, faithfully share the gospel with others if we've never come to understand and know the gospel ourselves and to be changed by it. 
You see, that will be Paul's main emphasis from this point forward in our study. He will systematically lay out the gospel in detail. The gospel he proclaimed. The gospel that he wrote to the church at Rome. A church he never met until later. But longs to visit and encourage them in the things of Christ. And in a way, surely in a way, that forms, this introduction forms a bridge from the formal introduction in these verses to the heart of the letter itself. The bridge is verses 16 and 17. That's the bridge. He tells them in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It will become a summary statement of his whole life. And these two verses will impact, we know historically, men and women from that day onward until our Savior returns. As the great hymn writer Augustus Toplady wrote, A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with thy righteousness on my person and offering to bring. The terrors of the law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. That is what we'll be studying next time as we meet, Lord willing, next Sunday evening. Those incredible two verses which literally changed the world. May God continue to bless our study of this most excellent letter, changing us all and conforming us into the image of his Son. Let us pray. Our Father, as we begin now to enter into the message of the gospel itself, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, under the teaching of your spirit. We pray that you would richly bless us, as no doubt you blessed him and all of those who are in Christ, with the knowledge that we are united to him, that we bear his righteousness and he has borne our sin. Bless us even now as we come to this picture of all that we have said this morning in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. May our hearts be encouraged. May we be built up and strengthened in him as men and women and young people under obligation to you, our great God. We pray this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name.